Michaela Plotner, Associate Editor of No-Till Farmer. Welcome to the 70th episode of the No-Till Farmer Influencers and Innovators podcast series, brought to you by New Leaf Symbiotics. Since the beginning of this series in 2019, dozens of no-till influencers and innovators have shared their strategies for success in their own words. This invaluable knowledge is archived and available for free at no-tillfarmer.com slash podcast or wherever you get your podcasts. Be sure to subscribe to receive an alert about upcoming episodes as soon as they are released. This series wouldn't be possible without the support of our sponsor, New Leaf Symbiotics. What if you could do more in 2022? TerraSim by New Leaf Symbiotics utilizes the power of microbe technology to increase yield, improve nutrient uptake, and achieve stronger ROI. And it's now available in convenient planter box application for corn and soybeans. To learn more and sign up for the 2022 risk-free satisfaction promise, visit newleafsim.com slash 2022. That's newleafsym.com slash 2022. Idaho no-tiller Dick Whitman is carrying on and passing on a tradition of conservation. As a fourth-generation farmer, he began experimenting with no-till in the 1980s to reduce tillage and stop erosion on his 20,000-acre operation, half of which is cropland. Today, an estimated 75% of the Palouse is no-tilled, thanks in part to Whitman's dedication. He helped found the influential Pacific Northwest Direct Seed Association, which lobbied for federal conservation policies and programs that supported practices like no-till. In this episode of the No-Till Farmer Influencers and Innovators podcast, Frank Lositer talks with Whitman about his transition to no-till, his resource management mindset, and how he's positioning the next generation of farmers and his family for success. Dick, tell us a little about the operation and tell us a little about the Palouse. What makes it different? Well, we have a about a 20,000 acre farm operation that's about half cropland and half timber and pasture. And we're actually on the uh, south side of the river, not on the Palouse. So we're mm-hmm. in, a, in an extremely diverse topography where we go from 1,000 feet to 4,500 feet elevation. So our crop fields are with almost a 2,500 foot elevation difference from lowest to highest. We have every imaginable soil areas. Um, we have differences in heat and climate, as well as significant differences in rainfall, ranging from 15, 16 inches on the low end to as high as 25 to 30 inches on the high end, except the last year when we got hardly nothing. <laughs> so I got most of the farm ground is in a range of 15 to probably 23 inches. So tell me who's involved. It's, do you grow up on this farm? Yes, I was raised here. We have the fourth generation now um, transition into management. I'm basically transitioned to board chair and transition coach, which means I don't make any decisions or plans, just um, help out once in a while. Right. We have the fifth, fifth generation uh, kids on the farm uh, going to school, but uh, with some interest in farming. Well, maybe you're kind of like me. If our son's running the company, if you have a compliment, I take it. If you have a problem, you have to go see him. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, we're pretty fortunate. We have the two son-in-laws and two daughters and a, a cousin 
that are involved on the farm. And so they are, they pretty much have the reins and I've, it's been four years now since I've turned over day-to-day management and it's great to see them new ideas, new challenges. And right now, right now there's no small list of challenges with the worst drought we've had in 30, 40 years and fertilizer prices going out through the roof. And it's just uh, kind of insane. Tell me about the drought year you've had. Prior to this last week, we haven't had significant rain since April. So this would be so, about, we're talking about the first of November, okay? Yeah. A couple of weeks ago, we had some of our first rains that were enough to measure. We got, you know, 10 hundreds here or there, but nothing that would even soak beyond the surface. So our, our spring crop, a lot of it was seeded into moisture. It was in the ground, and it never got a rain after it was in the ground. Wow. Our fall crops, we had averages between a third and a half of a crop. And if we'd had these kind of conditions 30, 40 years ago before direct seeding, we would have had almost no crop. But our soils are so resilient. They're so forgiving. There's so much life in them and the water efficiency of what little of water was there. It's amazing what we did grow considering the year. Because we not only had a record drought, we had a record number of weeks with 100-degree-plus weather. Mm -hmm. So it was just like a a hair dryer blowing on your crops night and day for almost a month straight. Right. So the drought was consistent among the high ground and the low ground? Yes. Wow, half a yield doesn't sound very exciting. Nope. (laughs) So what crops are you growing? We can grow almost a dozen different crops, three or four different kinds of wheat, white wheat, hard red winter wheat, club wheat, spring wheats we grow dark northern spring, um, soft white wheat, uh, hard white wheat, malt barley, feed barley, several different kinds of pulses, uh, peas, lentils, and garbanzo beans or chickpeas, and and several oil seeds we grow anywhere from winter canola to winter rape to spring canola and mustard. So we're basically in a five-year rotation where we try to grow a winter cereal, a spring cereal, an oil seed, a winter cereal, and then a pulse. So ideally, one in five, we've got a pulse, and one in five, we've got an oil seed in that rotation. So normally, you would be harvesting late July and into August, and then seeding in September. How has the drought affected what you're seeding this fall? Despite the ground being extremely dry, our soils are so pliable that with the hoe drill, we were able to seed right into the seed bed, and it was like seeding into to dry pulverized dirt, but we never had to work the ground. So pretty much planted our normal fall wheat rotation, a lot of winter peas. We've seeded a few fall cover crops, but uh, a, a large percentage of our crop goes in spring crop between the spring grains and the pulses and the oil sure. seeds. Are cover crops new to you? We've been experimenting with them, but one of the challenges, you can't take what works in North Dakota or the Midwest where they get rain all summer and sure. fly it out here. We we get our rain in the fall and winter and early spring. So we've applied it in some areas where we need to clean up some ground, and instead of fouling, we've used a cover crop rotation. There's just not enough experimentation so far to draw any conclusions, but we think it's doing some good things. We see some winter peas as a spring cover crop. So we'll see how that goes. All right. What other cover crops are you seeding? Oh, we've seeded the, you know, the cocktail with all kinds of things from radishes to oats to peas to canola. We did an experiment here a couple of years ago where we grazed half of it and did not graze the other half in a field that we kept all season. And 
then you have a drought year and it's hard to draw conclusions on what works and what doesn't. Right. So do you normally run some livestock or not? Yeah, we run about 350 cows. Okay. Crossbreds or what? Mostly base herd of Herefords, some straight Angus, and then a lot of crossbreds back and forth. So you got about half the farm in the trees and grazing, so that helps that, and then you can turn them into some of these graze these cover crop fields if you want to. Huh? Yeah, if we could. The problem is that most of this country, uh, a large percentage of fields 30 years ago, how all the fences torn out. The days of green manure plowdowns were long gone, and there was nothing for these cattle to graze. So now in order to do cover crops and graze, we have some fields that lend themselves to that, but they're very limited in the big scope of things. So I put up an article we did on you a while ago, and you you mentioned that you don't consider yourself farmers, ranchers, or loggers. You look at yourself as resource managers. Right. (laughs) Explain that for me. Well, in the 20s, when our great-grandfathers first started here, that was the earliest tilling that was going on in this part of the world, and it was pretty much wheat and fallow. And they were very conservation-minded, so they started introducing pulses and the rotation and barley and, and doing some green manure plow down with, with clovers and alfalfa. And because it was a diverse enterprise with the cattle and the timber and the crops, there was a lot of synergy in those things. We had a lot of grazing on the fields in the spring. The more you you look at these multiple enterprises, if you think on oh, just a farmer, or I'm just a log or I'm just a cattle, then you tend to think too myopically about what you're managing. And when you step back and say, you really were managing a whole blend of resources that hopefully can be managed for the most most energy, the best profit, but the, the best long-term sustainability. And as each generation is getting a turn at the wheel, they have the choice of saying, I will continue to be a farmer. I will, I will put more emphasis on the livestock. Our generation introduced more formalized logging, and we, we manage it. We did our own logging, mm-hmm. whereas in the past, that was kind of a somebody drove by and said, you got nice timber, can I log it? And then basically, they raped it and ran, and we, we got tired of that. So we finally realized that each one of these are a resource that need to be managed. And so if you open it up to the next generation and say, you don't have to be a farmer, you don't have to be a logger, you don't have to be a cowboy, you can be a resource manager. We've introduced um, some formalized hunting programs. We've got an outdoor camp that that provides recreation and youth development for kids. Right. You took me so, up there once on a visit. Right. So. so all these things are simply a test to the fact that if you think more like a resource manager, then you feel more freedom to shift the use of those resources where they can be the best served. So you got a couple kids and you got a couple son-in-laws and you got a cousin in the business. How do you break up who runs what? Well, we've always had a uh, very clear division of responsibilities. And that became more formalized in the 80s with written job restrictions and policies and a more, more transparency on finances. And so the current generation has simply built on that. Um, our do- youngest daughter is a CEO and she doesn't spend full time in an office. The manager spends a good part of their time working out in the business, but we have a precision egg manager, a, an agronomy manager, a shop foreman, a cattle operations manager. So the people that manage the, the primary uh, functional parts of the business have clearly defined roles, and yet there's a lot of synergy 
when it comes time to harvest, the whole team is supporting that. When it comes time to work on equipment in the wintertime, that whole team engages in that. But there's a clear leader who creates planning and who creates priorities as to what to do. Sure. Well, you've been pretty big on uh, sustainability, but that's you know that's kind of what direct seeding, which you guys call it in the Palouse more so than no-till, but that's what direct seeding, crop rotations, and cover crops has kind of been all about. We talked today about starting sustainability, yet no-tillers have been doing it for 40 years. Yeah, I think the challenge is that you can't just stop by saying, well, we figured that out 40 years ago and we'll just keep on doing that. The more we know, the, the more we realize we don't know. And there's a lot of people struggling right now after having been in, in no-till or direct seeding for 20 to 30 years that have serious questions about compaction. Um, some of these noxious weeds like Italian rye and cheatgrass are becoming increasingly problematic. And there's been a tendency for a lot of these guys to uh, step back and say, well, I need to do some tillage. We have not gone that route yet, but we we need to figure out some solutions to some of these problems. And we need some better science that tells us, you know, is there is there validity to the importance of some deep ripping? Or do we need to get the plow out every 25 years and, and plow? It scares the crap, crap out of me to think that we might do that. <laughs> I I look at the plow as an obsolete piece of equipment, and when we see the soil structure and and the ability of water to infiltrate and look at a year like this and how forgiving soils are in a stressful year, I'm still a believer that this is a system that's on the right track, even if there are things we need to learn and refine. What percentage of the land do you think in the Palouse is direct seeded? Oh, I would say at this point we're pushing 75%. Well, that's great. You know, when we started the Direct Seed Association in 2000, it was nearly impossible to even answer that question because there was no data being recorded. Mm -hmm. NRCS or FSA didn't really ask people what their farming systems were. So the only data out there was only anecdotal. But you just drive up and down the road and and you hardly ever see a plow anymore. You see very few chisel plows. You Mm -hmm. you mostly see single disc um, openers no-till drills and, and hoe drills doing a one or two pass system where most people are either putting it all down at once or they're ripping fertilizer and then seeding with virtually no other deep tillage. You were one of the founding members of the Pacific Northwest Direct Seed Association and they, they mm-hmm. had a tremendous impact on getting this going. Tell, tell us a little about how it got started and what they're still doing today and what's happened. They really have, and and I I feel even humbled to have been part of that because I never considered myself as the leading-edge farmer in the group by any means. We had really great tri-state support from Extension in the soil scientists with people like Don Cook and Roger Vesith and Don Wysocki. So the the STEEP program, which was the predecessor to, it was the long-term provider of conservation uh, education was finding that it was losing its audience. It went from eight or 900 people coming to where maybe 100 people showed up to a conference. And many of the leaders and advisors finally called the programmers on the carpet and said, we got to quit talking about summer fall and burning stubble and talk about how we get to direct seed or no-till. How do we start looking at real substantive change in the way we farm? There was a real strong push 
to put more emphasis in the, the annual conference planning on directing towards no-till no and direct seed. And with this, the caveat, it's, we're done making excuses. Let's talk about how we can do it. Mm-hmm. Let's quit saying it's too hard. And so to their credit, the leaders put on a fantastic conference where they brought in people like Carlos Cavetta from Chile and all kinds of experts from all over the world and the best of the best in the U.S. And when the farmers saw the agenda, we had 800 people show up to the first conference. It was incredible. And they were planning on 300. So after two or three years of doing that, it was clear that there was a demand for a more formalized leadership organization. And 12, 12 people representing all three states, Idaho, Washington, Oregon, agreed to kind of serve as a founding board. And I was one of those 12. And my role was more to help the group formalize the organization process because that was kind of my background on the consulting side. And and when they asked me if I would serve on the board, I said, I will, as long as I never have to get involved in leadership. And two years, three years later, I got stuck as president. (laughs) So (laughs) um, sometimes people break their agreements, but it was just in my mind, it was a, the environment was perfectly uh, ripe for people wanted answers on how do we change the way we farm. Yeah. And it wasn't just, it was everything. It was everything from what is the best equipment? What's the, how does this affect our fertilization program? How does research need to change to recognize varieties that are adapted to a no-till system versus intensive tillage? How do crop insurance programs need to be remodeled so that they reward people doing this instead of punishing them? Because a lot of our support systems punished those who were trying to be progressive. So our our leadership team was virtually on the front line in D.C. and Kansas City and with regulators and policymakers on numerous topics from the EQIP program to the CSP program. We were asked, what should we do? And we came to D.C. with a plan for how it should work. And we couldn't believe that there was very few other people that even had an idea how it should work. So it was an opportunity to have a huge influence on conservation policy from D.C. all the way through the system. And that that was kind of a void. All the commodity groups were focusing on farm programs that were money-related and insurance-related and research-related. But we didn't have somebody lobbying for that systems thinking that applied how you till or not till, how you look at rotations, and how do you look at the whole system and how do we have legislation and farm programs that help support doing the right thing? So I, I think in looking back, that leadership effort spawned a number of things. It it spawned really good annual t- conferences. It created a lot of field trips in the field with on-farm tours where we were able to see on a micromanagement standpoint, you can't take what applies in Middleton, Washington, with eight inches of rainfall and apply it where I live with 25 inches of rainfall. A number of breakfast groups were started um, throughout the Northwest. We had one in Lewiston that was one of the first, and then others said, well, we want something like that, but we need people to, we need to have an area to deal with our kinds of problems. Those breakfast groups got spawned in, in Oregon and in up north in Washington State, in addition to continuing in this area. And that's where the real information transfer took place. You meet every three weeks all winter long and, and you have really solid information and networking. By the end of the winter, you've got a tremendous set of new ideas. Sure. 
our National Road Towage Conference is kind of like what you were talking about, that we're coming up on our 30th year. And I remember the first year we thought maybe if we get lucky, we'd draw 150 people, and we drew 817 the first year. People were ready for this. <laughs> yeah. And we've, we've succeeded for 30 years in a row now. So. Yeah, that's always been during the heyday of my winter speaking season. It was really a treat to get to participate in your session here a few years ago. Right. No, we like that. So you mentioned plowing. You go back a couple of generations, and I assume you were plowing, then you moved to uh, chisel plowing, then to no-till, or do I have it wrong? We we kind of went in a three-stage. We looked long roads where we wanted to be, and we stopped plowing, and we started chisel plowing, and then we started using a disc just to chop up some residue. But I think equally important to the transition in tillage systems was that we, we'd we had a lot of good advice from other countries about you got to prepare your ground for a, that shock. You need a healthy rotation as well as change in tillage. So we have been some of the early experimenters with canola back in the early 80s. Um, we had grown winter rape way back previous generations. We already had been growing peas and lentils. So the thing that we really found beneficial was moving out of the wheat pea or wheat lentil rotation to extending these pulses and oil seeds to where they were only growing once in five years and letting the oil seeds like winter canola or rapeseed become our plows. They put out these deep roots that penetrated hard pans. And uh, when the roots died out, they became a just like a siphon tube where water would drain down deep in the soil. So... To me, one of the, in hindsight, best successes was that we had a lot of advice on don't make the transition overnight. Transition your tillage systems from intensive to less intensive. And, and then we, along with that, we're moving our rotational diversity parallel to that. And we never saw a, a hit in yields. From the day we being started doing full direct seed, no-till, our, our yields and our soil health continue to improve. But I think it's because we did it gradually. Uh, we didn't just go out there and throw away the plow and then just do no-till the next day. And that's my my take on it anyway. I think you've probably done a better job of uh, reducing tillage in stages than we have here in the Midwest, because I think we got a lot of people here who quit plowing that probably went to minimum tillage, chisel plow or disking. Then next year, they all they just went to no-till. They didn't think about the deep roots or what they could do for them. And then I think some of that's coming back now with uh, certain cover crops are getting the roots deeper and is helping that situation. We'll come back to the conversation with Dick Whitman in just a moment. Before we do so, thanks to New Leaf Symbiotics for supporting our No-Till Farmer Influencers and Innovators podcast series. What if you could do more in 2022? TerraSim by New Leaf Symbiotics utilizes the power of microbe technology to increase yields, improve nutrient uptake, and achieve stronger ROI. And it's now available in convenient planter box application for corn and soybeans. To learn more and sign up for the 2022 risk-free satisfaction promise, visit newleafsim.com slash 2022. That's newleafsym.com slash 2022. Before we get back to the conversation, here is Frank Lassiter with a little known no-till farmer fact. 
With higher prices across the board, some note holders are asking if they can reduce their soybean seeding rates. And if you were to decrease your seeding rates by about 20,000 plants per acre, you could save $8 to $10 per acre, of course, depending on your seed costs. Well, six years of soybean population studies at the Calmer Research Farm in uh, Illinois shows that uh, lower populations of seed can really pay off. At Marion Commerce Farm, through six years and 24 replications, 50,000 soybean seeds per acre was the most profitable population to plant soybeans. It got a yield of 69 bushel, which was pretty consistent all the way across from, with populations from 50,000 to 200,000. Of course, most people would be scared to plant only 50,000 plants per acre, but his tests show that that paid off, and Marion has reduced his soybean planting populations, but not to that extent. Now let's get back to Frank Lesseter and Dick Whitman as they discuss the equipment that Whitman is running and how his crops are marketed. You're seeding maybe 12 crops. You got to, one drill can do this or you got to have different drills or what? Well, we have two drills. We have a 60 foot Case IH hoe drill, and we also have a John Deere single disc opener drill. And the, the challenge is trying to keep these disc drills and all the moving parts to not be a full-time job in maintenance. <laughs> right. And the other thing is we just traded in our, our earlier model hoe drill. Both of our drills had very, very high technology Xactric systems for delivering fertilizer. And when they work, they're great because they have tremendous flexibility to do variable rate. Uh, the accuracy is just perfect. But the more technology you have, the more wiring and the more things you have to go wrong. And as the farm has gotten bigger and we've got younger and younger players here, they just don't have the bandwidth to, to monkey around with stuff that only works when the sun shines. <laughs> so... Uh, and I'm seeing this not here, but it's all around. Everybody wants simple, or they want simpler in a in a business where it almost needs to be more complex to optimize. We've been doing yield mapping and variable rate application now since 2003, so almost 20 years. But it's getting harder and harder to find our input suppliers that can even help us. Uh, they're retiring out people that don't have the skill set to mess with this technology and the people coming in their place. They're stressed to be able to to be out in in the lead to help us um, innovate and uh, apply some of this, you know, more complex management to the management of soil. And I think there's a desire on the farm here to do it, but it requires a lot of partnerships with your chemical fertilizer dealers and with your seed dealers. And it requires partnerships with the universities doing research on how much can we vary seed? And, and in that area, we we just get a flunking grade in the, this part of the world. We <laughs> um, just don't have the depth in our research uh, areas. They've not given us a lot of depth there. And when we ask them for help, they basically say, you know more about it than we do, huh. which that's kind of scary. Right, exactly, right. Uh, are you soil testing? We are. Well, so we soil test every year on anything that is going to get fertilizer. We, at one time, were working with as many as five to seven zones, and we've tried to move back to a, mostly three zones in most fields. 
and it's it's not an exact science, but we in this part of the world, our productivity is almost directly related to soil depth. The soil depth relates to water retention. So around these rims that look into canyons, there might be three to four inches of soil on top of basalt rock. So it's a no-brainer that you cut the fertilizer way back and and maybe you grow something instead of in the past, you put the same fertilizer on every acre and all your poor ground just burned up, never produced anything. It works, or could we benefit from more sophistication? Probably. And we've looked at infrared maps, we've looked at soil testing, um, there's lots of different ways to identify variability. But again, there's such a steep learning curve for the next generation to figure out all the, the what ifs and the suppliers to support it that it's it's been really challenging to move the implementation along with the technology. Well, I think you're right too. We got farm equipment magazine that goes to farm equipment dealers, and they're seeing a huge shift in their precision departments. Two or three years ago, it was a profit center; it was a hot commodity, and now it's just kind of going back into being what we just offer everybody. It's like a commodity instead of something special. Yeah, and they're, and they're all they're all hurting for techs that can do this too. That's right. I mean, the, the equipment has got tremendous potential. But having someone in the dealership that knows how to come out and troubleshoot to set it up, um, they're getting thinner and thinner. You're at the mercy of one guy in a, a whole dealership that might understand how to set up your Pro 800 or whatever to do the things you need to do for somebody right. precision egg. Well, and some of these dealers will have three or four precision guys, but they're spread across 14 different dealer locations. Go Nature ahead. takes its part. You park this stuff in the spring and everything was working and then you start up in the fall and it's like water gets into connections and you've got umpty jillion connections on this equipment anymore and trying to make all this stuff continue to function is it's major operation. And you're getting to a point now where you got to have it work or you can't even get in the field anymore. So Exactly. At least in the old days, you everything was mechanical. You replaced a bolt and you went, but now it's electronic function stops, you know, half a million, $700,000 quad track, and it's got a faulty gauge that says the fuel tank is empty when it's not, and you're stopped. You can't just override the, the monitor and say, well, I know you're wrong, and, and disable it. <laughs> right, right. So um, what's the new generation? What What are they getting excited about on the farm? That's a good question. <laughs> right now, they're getting excited about a rain. Us old guys, we've we've been through these things, and we know that it's not going to last forever, but it doesn't make it any less painful. One of the things that's exciting is that the value system of this next generation is different than ours, and they're probably going to have a better balance between work and, and family issues. And so they're trying to figure out how do we get what needs to be done, but have time off on Saturdays and Sundays, make attending kids' ball games and things a higher priority, making time for church, and uh, they're not going to do it the way we did. So that's, that's exciting to know that they have that, that option to decide. They still, they're, they're all plagued with the issue of, you know, we have to tap technology. You almost have to grow to be able to utilize the equipment that's out there today. Mm-hmm. I don't, very few farmers, I think, want to get big just to get bigger. They, they grow because the, the combines are bigger, the sprayers are bigger, and they don't want to be part-time farmers. But along with that growth comes more challenges of do you 
stay smaller? Do you grow? Do you hire more people? you try to do it yourself? Do you outsource? And all those are strategies that need to be on the table to, to work on that balance. So I, I think the next generation is excited to see some possibilities coming down the road with more synergy between the livestock and the cropping side, some opportunities for cover crops. The genetics in some of our new wheat varieties are just incredible. You know, wheat and art crops have never seen the advances in productivity that the corn and soybean industry has done, but they're not GMO either. So how do we achieve some of those leaps in productivity and still have a product that the market will buy? So uh, how do you go about marketing these 12 crops? That's a good question. Some of these crops are marketed when they go in the ground, so they're grown basically with the contract. But a lot of the crops are we're marketing throughout the year. Our daughter now is in charge of that, and we've always tried to look down the road and, and have a good portion of our, our crops sold well before harvest. And that's kind of a double-edged sword because if it's a year like this and you can find yourself with your whole crop sold with only having a half a crop. Sure, right. The good thing is that crop insurance programs with the, the revenue policies have given us a lot more flexibility. You know that you're going to produce, you hope, at least a two-thirds crop when you can insure 75, 80% of your proven yield and you have really good yield bases then you can at least aggressively market within that guaranteed level of bushels. And if the market runs away and you don't have those bushels, the harvest price option allows you to replace those bushels at the market. So at least you're not losing money on bushels you never raised. A key part of marketing is is knowing your cost of production, which is something we've always really worked on. And setting some targets out there and having a plan so that when the the targets get hit, you're executing instead of when you hit something that's nice and you try to make a plan and you, and you, you just never make a decision to pull a plug. So I'd like to talk to uh, a little bit about Greenbridge and explain what it is to our Midwestern people. And was it more of a concern in a dry year or didn't it matter? I think we got Greenbridge back here in the Midwest in some instances, but we don't under, we don't recognize it as Greenbridge or understand it. And I think cover crops have made this worse. Well, the green bridge is a biological phenomenon that Dr. Jim Cook at WSU sure. became worldwide famous for figuring this out. And basically, back in the 70s, when people first started trying to do no-till, where they were growing wheat following wheat, it's pretty common to simply harrow the ground to get it smooth, and then we'd come back in the fall and seed wheat right into wheat where there was already green plants growing Mm -hmm. and we didn't have roundup so we didn't have any tool to desiccate or clean the ground up and what happened was that seed was going in the ground and these nice little vulnerable hairy roots were going into the ground and all these pathogens and bad little buggers in the soil that were hosted on the roots of the old plants would just go, oh boy, here's new meat. And they would just basically gravitate to these young plants. And that phenomenon is what we call Greenbridge. We were experiencing up to a 50% yield loss by seeding into a, a seeded environment where there were already green plants growing. And oftentimes it would be volunteer wheat or volunteer barley. So what we found was by, by spraying that with Roundup and then waiting at least two weeks 
where maybe it wasn't entirely brown, but the plants were truly dead. Seeding into that ground um, gave us a whole new set of soil health characteristics for that new plant. The new vulnerable roots were not competing with pathogens and, and little buggers that were just launching off of the other old roots. And, and we've done a number of tests where we had a sprayer skip or an intentional streak just to see if it works. And I can tell you, it's just night and day. There will be almost a 50% yield drop in those places where there was a sprayer skip or the Roundup uh, was not applied. We try to spray as late as in the fall as we can to try to clean the ground up. And then in the spring of the year, basically right ahead of the drills, we spray again and we're just picking up a very, very small amount of volunteer that's greening up. Um, that has made a world of difference. The challenge is we're relying way too much on Roundup as our only tool. And with the worldwide concerns and problems with Roundup, I think that's going to be one of the biggest challenges for the next generation is how do we lessen our reliance on one chemical? Can you go to Liberty or not? Um, well, the Liberty link and some of those things have not really been a technology that's been applied to the crops we grow. Yeah, that's what I figured. Okay. So residue management, you you got these combines. What what width headers you got on your combines? Uh, they're 40-foot draper headers. Trying to cut as close as we can. Uh, we come behind the combines. We use the extra heavy-duty straw choppers to pulverize as much of that straw as possible. Mm-hmm. And then we use a heavy harrow to make sure that the residue is very evenly spread out and that heavy harrow barely scratches the surface but what it does is it kind of shakes any volunteers weed seed or or grain that's thrown over where it gets down in there and gets into the dirt so that once we get rain we get we get good good germination and we try to maximize seeds germinating and getting killed off for the next crop right so you've been no-tilling 30, 40 years, or I may have the number wrong. Compaction become a problem for you or not? I don't know that we can answer that. Okay. You know, until you go out there with these these penetrometers that actually tell you exactly what the the compaction is, it, it seems like we are getting some compaction, but we've had neighbors who've gone out with deep-tilled um, rippers and claim it does a lot of good, and we've had others research things that said it's questionable if it's doing any good. Mm-hmm. So I I wish I could give you a more definitive answer, but I don't think we know. Okay. And you are, you're, you are running tracks on some of your machines, yeah. right? Yeah. Almost all of our. Okay. Um, the quad tracks, um, there's, there's seldom a tractor with wheels on it going over ground when it's moist. How do you how did you make the justification to invest the extra money in tracks? Um, early on, we felt it was just totally critical. We had big tractors with triples on them and duels, and the triples did better than the duels. But in a wet year, you could see every mark where the wheel tra- tracks went. Right. And we had challengers and quad tracks with with tracks instead of wheels, and uh, night and day difference on evidence in the field where those tracks had been. So I, I think that's a key part of it. But when you're going over this ground with combines and with trucks and with the bank out wagons and so many different things, it's just hard to say how much deep down compaction is occurring sure. there. Right. Another area that I think needs more science 
more research and actually being out there measuring what how how do we actually measure compaction mm-hmm. there are tools to do it that we we just don't have the bandwidth to go out and, and do that you mentioned earlier some problem weeds what's going to happen in this area in the next five ten years what are you going to have to do different <laughs> i wish if i could tell you that i wouldn't be sitting here <laughs> I, I think it's, it's going to continue requiring rotational diversity, continually uh, knowing the different families of chemicals and and making sure that you're rotating those active ingredients from different families. Um, huge amount of, that's a huge amount of talent required to do that. And so Tom and Todd, along with the the chemical fertilizer dealers, have to be on top of that having good records of what you've done in the past so that you can say, well, we use that chemical and this, that family too much. We got to find something else, even if it's not as good, or we're going to have a wreck. And the winter meetings are doing a good job of trying to address this, but it's so complex. You're really, it's, it's where you earn your keep out of having a good field man. Right. Field field person. Well, another big problem is we don't have any real option for Roundup in many of these instances. We we know we shouldn't be using as much Roundup, but we kind of have to in some instances because there isn't any options. Fertilizer program, you're mainly anhydrous, dry, or liquid uh, besides anhydrous, or what? Our long-standing program was we put anhydrous down deep with liquid sulfur and nitrogen in the deep band. Mm-hmm. And then we would apply a dry starter with the seed. So that's where we did this for years is we um, sure. put all four products down with one drill. In more recent years, we've been doing a lot more ripping where we're putting the anhydrous and solution down deep and then just putting dry starter with the seed. Makes the drill way more efficient, but it's not achieving the fertilizer placement benefits that we had with the other system where everything was right in the same seed row and the primary fertilizer was one to two inches down below the seed. What would be your row widths you're doing this? Those typically are on a one foot spacing and they don't have, they're not necessarily um, tracking with any seed row. Okay. Well, one foot doesn't really matter that much. Right. No. Thanks to Frank Lesseter and Dick Whitman for today's conversation, the 70th episode of our No-Till Farmer Influencers and Innovators series. You can listen to dozens of other discussions with no-tillers around the world at no-tillfarmer.com slash podcast. Our complete episode archive is sure to expand your knowledge about high-profit no-till crop production. Before we wrap up this episode, here's Frank Lesseter once more. With this podcast talking about uh, what's happening in the Palouse area of Washington, Oregon, and Idaho with Dick Whitman, the idea of uh, drought came up because they've been suffering a serious drought this year since the last rain they got was in April, and this is now November. And by uh, adding diversified rotations, they have as many as 12 crops, including cover crops. It helps them deal with compaction, reduced yields, drought, insect disease, and weed problems and cash in on value added crop markets. 
Yet expanding no-till rotation seems to be tough in the Corn Belt when you can't find crops with the same earning power as corn and soybeans. But as Dick has pointed out in the Northwest, no-till can go a long ways with improving crop rotations and dealing with drought problems. Thanks to our sponsor, New Leaf Symbiotics, for helping to make this no-till farmer, influencers, and innovators podcast series possible. If you have any feedback on this episode, please feel free to email me at mpaulkner at lassitermedia.com or call me at 262-777-2441. And don't forget that Frank would love to answer your questions about no-till and the people and innovations that have made an impact on today's practices. So please email those questions to us at listenermail at no-tillfarmer.com. Once again, if you haven't done so already, be sure to subscribe to the No So Farmer podcast to get an alert as soon as future episodes are released. For Frank Lesseter and our entire staff here at No So Farmer, I'm Associate Editor Michaela Faulkner. Thanks for listening.